the medical technician folks, they were just eating it up. You know, shock trauma, we didn't, they also had a program, medics, that they were rotating through too. And those folks would gravitate towards the orthopedic room. And I would show them fasciotomy, show them amputations, and they, they found incredible value to that. And they should have their hands on real stuff before they're out there. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Air Force Colonel Dr. David B. Carmack to War Docs. Dr. Carmack is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon who also completed an orthopedic trauma fellowship at Wayne State in Detroit. He served as a surgeon on active duty and later retired from the Air Force Reserves. He has deployed multiple times, and you can learn more about his bio on wardoxpodcast.com. In this episode, Colonel Carmack talks about the role of a trauma-trained orthopedic surgeon caring for combat casualties downrange and throughout the evacuation chain of care. He also talks about the importance of military and civilian medical partnerships and discusses his role in setting up early programs at Ben Taub in Houston and at Shock Trauma in Baltimore. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Kevin Neary, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Air Force Colonel, Dr. David Carmack to Wardox. Dave, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you guys. Good to be here. So, Dr. Carmack, what led you to choose a career in Air Force medicine? Um, and I guess my past probably similar to a lot of our fellow military surgeons, but I was a pre-med in college and, and was kind of going that direction and stumbled a couple of times, got back up and essentially came from a military family. My father was able aviator with Annapolis. So it was definitely in our family, but it wasn't something I was really thinking of. Um, once... After college, where I got into medical school and then started looking at, frankly, kind of the bills, what it was going to cost. My father suggested, hey, look at the military option. And I didn't really have any problem with it. And so I, I investigated it and I kind of realized it was a very good deal. And, and so at that time, it, it was like I kind of more pursued it because it looked like a good deal. It was exciting. And so that's kind of how it, how it happened. It wasn't really well planned, but it ended up working out just fine. So how did you decide on orthopedic surgery as a specialty? My first experience with orthopedics was kind of kind of a kind of a crazy story actually. I was with a friend of mine in college and he had cut his hand really badly and I flexed a tendon injury. And we were out San Francisco area, we went to college and uh, you know, in the emergency department. Long story short, he had to go to surgery that night and the surgeon came in and, and said, Hey, asked to what my story was. And I said, I was pre-med. And, and at that time, things were a little different. A surgeon said, well, do you want to come into the OR and assist me? And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to. You can imagine it's like your closest, one of your good friends. And I told him, I'm, I'm coming in, Tom. I'm going to be really helping out. And so I basically held hooks for, for the surgeon as he did the flexor tendon injury. And I just like, this is fabulous. And then went on to do kind of more research jobs, animal research jobs, and loved operating. And so, I don't know, I think, that's kind of my first taste of orthopedics, and, and I think it just kind of stuck. So, so do you get to close Tom's hand? I got to throw some sutures, yeah. Yeah, and, right. and then he did, he did well. He did well. So following a general surgery internship at Wilford Hall, 
in San Antonio. You served as a general medical officer in the role of chief of flight medicine at Kelly Air Force Base in Texas. Tell us about that experience. And did you feel prepared after completing the general surgery internship? And what lessons did you learn as a GMO that helped you in your subsequent military medicine career? Yeah, I think my like, couple of years as a flight doc or, or general medical officer, those were not planned. I didn't, wasn't really sure the direction I was going to take. I, I initially wanted to go north of Phoenix and and life plans changed uh, with a number of things in, in a good way. And started kind of down the path of general surgery and then kind of realized, now nah, I really want to kind of pivot and get into orthopedics. And at that time, probably with you guys too, you, you couldn't go straight through. So you, you had to do a fight medicine or GMO. So I, I threw my name in the hat. And at the time, my wife was a, a resident in pediatrics at the University of Texas in San Antonio. And we didn't really want to displace her, but she was ready to move. And Long story short, I got extremely lucky and got an assignment in flight medicine in San Antonio. So she could stay in her residency, and then I was able to do flight medicine. And it was primary care. There wasn't any inpatient duties. So it, I didn't have that much experience with internal medicine, right? And, and, and so, I'd so I did a lot of learning, quick learning. But I'm, I'm a quick learner, and it, it taught me that you really can, you can, you can learn quick, and you can do a good job, and... The other thing it taught me was that the line, the Air Force and line officers and line enlisted really depend on the medical folks. And you don't really get a sense of that when you come right into just a GME program at a military hospital. So I came to appreciate that a lot of people in the military depend on the medical corps, like a lot. And so I think that was a valuable lesson for me. You completed your orthopedic surgery training in the military at Wolford Hall. And then subsequently in your career, you've had the opportunity to be in a faculty at civilian training centers. How would you compare the training that you got in orthopedics compared to what you saw later in the civilian sector? I did function as faculty really in three civilian programs while on active duty because when I was a fellow, I kind of was a clinical instructor and I was a fellow, but I, I functioned as faculty. And then in the two other assignments, they were full residencies and some had fellowships. So I think that I would, the military program, and maybe give a shout out to my program director, Ted Parsons, but I would say the academics at the military residency were far superior than the civilian academics. I would say the civilian programs probably had a higher volume of case experience, maybe for the residents. And, but I think at the same time in the military program, and my other colleagues, and you guys may be able to speak to this. Our, our case volumes were fine, and we had appropriate levels of responsibility. Probably, I think sometimes even had more surgical roles in the military training program. So, so I was a little biased, but but I thought it was a great training. Following residency, you went directly into orthopedic trauma surgery fellowship at Wayne State in Detroit. What interested you in further fellowship training, and how does that specialty benefit military medicine on the battlefield? I think during residency, I just seemed to be attracted more to acute care orthopedics or trauma and, and just kind of gravitated towards that and enjoyed that. I enjoyed the other elective stuff as well, but I did like, I like the acute care stuff. And then decided to apply for a fellowship through the military and was fortunate enough to get picked up as a sponsor spot through the Air Force and then applied to the civilian programs. And picked and got selected and, and trained in Detroit at Detroit Receiving Hospital. So great, great experience. In orthopedics trauma, you're really looking to develop your skills in the pelvis and acetabulum and, and fractures dislocations in that area and periarticular fractures and 
kind of complex limb reconstructive stuff, salvage efforts. It gave me all that. It just and it, it gave me more mentors and, and and that sort of thing to kind of translate that into the deployed surgeon or the or battle battle line surgeon. I think in a weird, in a kind of a strange sort of way, it really didn't make me a better frontline surgeon because really the folks with the trauma training were usually the ones you kind of want to put at the level four, at the higher level of care, like your Walter Reeds, Bethesda's, Longstool, stuff like that. But is it definitely key piece of the trauma care continuum, you know, is that fellowship training. And you don't really necessarily get that in a general, just from your, or from your residency in orthopedics, but, but a lot of it you do. Following that trauma fellowship, you were the second military orthopedic surgeon assigned to train deploying teams at the U.S. Joint Trauma Training Center at Ben Tobb in Houston. We've previously spoken with John Holcomb, and I know that he was involved in that program. Tell us about how you were preparing those teams in that era that was pre-9-11. It was such a great memory time. I was slated to go for fellowship back to Wilford Hall in San Antonio, and we were happy with that. My wife, family, we were happy with that. And then I learned of this opportunity of this new program being stood up in Houston. And John, John was the commander of that, as then John ended up being my boss. And so I reached out to them and, and said, Jesus looks like a great opportunity and kind of coordinated with the, with the consultants and that sort of thing. So we, we were able to work an agreement where it met everybody's needs. And then I got, I went there on assignment. So it was unique in the fact that I got to be exposed to all three forward surgical teams of the Army, Navy, and Air Force. And then kind of their deployment teams would rotate in for a month at a time. And we essentially kind of ran them through many fellowships, if you will. So I would treat that the orthopod as, as a fellow and, and they would kind of shadow me and I'd put them in other cases. And so they were able to get their hands back into acute trauma and which a lot of these folks, as you, you might know, they were well-trained surgeons. And they were at their active duty assignment, usually at a base or a hospital that didn't have acute care. So they may not have seen some of this stuff in two or three years or longer. And so that was unique. And then I got to learn all three services and their terminologies and, and work in a joint, a joint unit, which I thought was very, very exciting. And the interesting thing was pre-9-11, right? So a lot of people then even were like, why are we doing this? Some people ate it up. Other people are like, ah. Do we need, really need to be doing this? And obviously that, well, not obviously, but that program, I think came from like an analysis. And I'm a little, this stuff was very interesting to me. So I'm still a little bit passionate about it. But I think after Gulf One, if you will, the analysis was that a lot of the deployed surgeons just, they hadn't really seen acute trauma recently because of their science. So I think in the after action report, that's what stood up this major collaboration between Ben Taub, Baylor Medical Center, and the Department of Defense. It was it was a very exciting role to be as my first attending job, if you will, because all of a sudden I'm I'm, I'm assigned at this academic trauma center, and and I've got civilian residents under me, and I've got military people rotating under me. So it was a little much at the beginning. So I learned I learned quickly. <laughs> so later in 2001, you were part of the team to set up C Stars, also known as the Center for Sustainment of Trauma and Readiness Skills at Shock Trauma Hospital in Baltimore. Tell us about how 9-11 impacted this project and how the Air Force has leveraged CSARS program to prepare and maintain skills for deploying healthcare professionals. So same concept uh, at CSARS in Baltimore at Shock 
trauma, but we utilized it then top. So essentially that program kind of grew in, in, in Houston and it kind of grew, outgrew itself. I think it's a good way to say it. And so it was decided to, to stand it down and to kind of go to three separate centers and each service would go to its each center. Maybe with LA County, USC, the Army went to Ryder Memorial Trauma Center in Florida. And then Air Force went to shock trauma in Baltimore. So they gave a group, a group of us because we had, we just, we, we only were there a year. And so they said, Hey, you can, you got a PCS. So they gave us the option we could pe- So I was going to go back to San Antonio or go to Baltimore, help stand this project up. And I thought trying to stand up a project would be pretty exciting. And, and so I, I chose that. And plus shock trauma was a big trauma place and more, more, more experience. So I t- went with a cadre of Air Force folks, general surgeon, EV, anesthesia, and we went to set up this program. And I think we PCS like in June or something like that. Kind of fully expecting we'd be up and running. Like we just need to get our lockers and get our scrubs and be ready to go. But it didn't happen because two big, large organizations, the military, the DOD, and a civilian academic center, it, like they were having troubles working out the details of the contract. And so essentially at that time, I'm like, well, this might not happen. I'm starting with family. So I kind of started making relation, making connections down at DC at at the time, it was Walter Reed and then National Naval and started getting credential down there because I'm like, if, if this program doesn't stand up, I don't want to move again. So I'll have to work something out. Fast forward, 9-11 happened and it was pretty interesting because we'd already done a lot of the work on the contract. I'd actually, as a, as a docs, we were working on this contract with the lawyers. But at the end of the day, after 9-11 happened, Everybody got on board. <laughs> the con- we got that con- that contract was like signed in forty eight hours, and so they were really within a month. I think we were getting ready to receive our first Air Force. I guess it was EMADS team. I forget what you called, it. but first team to get down there, and um, it was exciting because everybody was ramped up and everybody realized this was needed, and so that was fun, exciting, challenging. But it so so that that model, I think it kind of got its legs at, at Ben Taub in Houston. And then, then it really got going at, at each one of the centers. There were, there's challenges taking this. It's challenging bringing an attending level surgeon into an academic program that's very layered and getting them the experience that you think they need or they think they need. So it, it, I won't say it wasn't without hiccups, but, but I'd say overall it was well-received. And later on, after a few years, it, it was kind of, I wouldn't say less critical, but the military folks started getting a lot more, a lot of medical experience from their deployments. So they were actually kind of teaching the civilians after a while. So, so the, ta- the tables flipped a little bit, but, but I'm a big proponent. I'm a little biased because I was involved in it, but of those collaborations. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned that once people were getting all that experience in deployment, that readiness preparation in the States really wasn't as important because you're getting huge volume downrange. Fast forward several years to where we are right now, that op tempo obviously has gone away and we're not seeing that amount of trauma when people get deployed. And right now it's almost like we're rediscovering these civilian military partnerships and trying to make them even more available and expand beyond the Sea Stars programs and the the one in Ryder in California with the Navy. How important do you think that is for future surgeons and medical providers that are going downrange to have that kind of experience in 
trauma centers and see that trauma? Yeah, I would say kind of from my, that, was that year at Bentob when there was no, nobody was really even thinking of a 9-11 or nobody was thinking of any conflict. I would say those surgeons really were appreciative of it. And it wasn't, it was a month away from their family, but they enjoyed it. And then the other kind of added bonus, which I didn't see, as an orthopod, I kind of created a cadaver lab. So I was taking general surgeons and other folks and the techs and taking them in. We were putting next fixes on, on extremities. And I, they were kind of learning how to do that. Whether or not that needs to be in their skill set, that's another discussion. But we were doing fasciotomies and there was a lot of benefit having a military active duty kind of person embedded in that. There were probably downsides of it as well, because then that pulled me or that person out of a MTF. I get that. Um, But I hope going forward that we figure out how to maintain that link between the academic medical centers and the military medical corps. Because in one way or another, we can definitely, there's a lot of synergy there. We can definitely benefit from that. I think it, I think what it looks like might need to change from year to year. And I think one of the things you mentioned about the previous programs that's important is that it takes the entire team. So the techs and the nurses, that team goes through that training. So it's not just a surgeon who's who's getting that experience. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's something I didn't really get because in the beginning, I'm like, okay, I'm here to train a surgeon. But, but then the people who were really the medical technician folks, who were, they were just eating it up. And then in you know, shock trauma, we didn't, they also had a program. I think there were army special forces or something, medics that they were rotating through too. And those folks would gravitate towards the orthopedic room. And they knew I was active. They knew I was military. And I would show them fasciotomy, show them amputations. And they just, you know, they, they found incredible value to that. And and as, well, actually, you had a guy on your podcast recently who was a senior enlisted, I think, that was kind of, in, I guess, Navy medic or something. But those folks are really key. I've never really been in the line deployment, if you will, but those folks and their medical skills amongst the troops are so important, right? And like, they should have their hands on real stuff before they're out there. So what are some of the nuts and bolts of the CSTARS program? Were the surgeons fully credentialed at the civilian institutes? And then could the civilian institutes receive reimbursement for professional workload attributed to the provider? Yeah, so we were able to get at least the attending level surgeons. We were able to fully credential them. So they could function. They couldn't function in an attending level. They had to function in a training environment. But but so the credentials were not a big deal. Like we didn't need to, it wasn't a huge process. We could get, we had an MSC or a couple of MSCs, um, Medical Service Corps officers who were just sharp as anything. And they, they, they really got that stuff done. So that was, that was pretty easy. And as far as the people who were kind of stationed there, yeah, no, they billed for all my, all our services. I think the only thing they couldn't bill for me was, I think, Medicare, because I think that's a federal dollars and I was getting paid federal dollars. So I tried to steer clear if it was a Medicare case, if you will, to be the attending, I could still get in there and get access and get the military folks in there. But frankly, we're kind of like so busy. Sometimes they, we, they didn't worry about it. So, but yeah, you could bill, but I think there was a couple buckets that technically they couldn't bill and they did not, you know. You had the opportunity to deploy a couple of times to the CENTCOM area of responsibilities in Iraq and Qatar. Tell us a little bit about that experience. I was, again, very fortunate and I think just the way the timing worked out, I mean, so I was able to kind of pick the timing of my deployments. So the first one was to 
Cutter, Qatar, and Alu Deed. And so they had an orthopod station there. And I was not getting, I wasn't getting frontline stuck. It wasn't, that didn't go through a cutter. But, but at the same time, it was an orthopedic experience and, and I was a resource and serviced a big population on that base and then serviced other ones that there were some people that came from downrange that didn't need to go to Germany that we could provide orthopedic care, ankle fractures, wrist fractures. And, and so we could take care of them. And, and some of them we rehabbed. It wasn't major. And then they'd return back to their unit. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. And so that, that deployment really was pretty, pretty nice. And it was great experience. We had on base, we had a, we had an OR in the clinic. And by the time I got there, it was a kind of a trailer. I think if you talk to other people, they were there with tents. And now I think it's a hardened facility. And then we also had an agreement downtown in Doha. I think it was the Doha clinic and they were nice ORs. So we, we would actually take patients downtown and do their operation. We take our own anesthesia, our own nursing, our own tech and use their ORs. And so that was, that was a kind of a cool experience. And we take the patient, we'd carry the patient with us. And then take them back to base after and recover them. Then later, when then I, I that was kind of a transition time when I was when I transitioned to reserve, and so then I kind of coordinated a deployment to Balad, and Balad was kind of amazing because you right you had every you had the urologist, you had a neurosurgeon, you had we had everything in Balad, and a lot of your listeners probably rotated through there. And, and so that experience was, was kind of amazing as well, just because of the tempo and the, the amount of volume that was coming through there. Both those cases, I, I, I wouldn't say I used my full set of trauma orthopedic skills, but I definitely, we did trauma, right? You're, you were stabilizing stuff and, and moving it on and, and doing that judiciously. But yeah, it, it just those were, those are very good experiences. I, I definitely done. There are so a lot of you. Know, a lot of my colleagues that had more kind of I would say harder deployments than myself. So I always kind of felt a little, little not guilty. But there, so I don't even want to pretend that my deployments were to the to the degree some other folks did. A lot of sacrifices. Do you have a most memorable case from any of these deployments? There was one case I always remember. It's kind of a, there, obviously, we all have, have seen bad injuries, right? And they're just devastating and, and emotional and dramatic. And I think those are just, go, that goes without saying. And I think we're just kind of blessed and fortunate that we were able to help, you know, those people in our, in our capacity. One case, though, that does stand out to me, kind of more inspirational, I guess. And it kind of goes back to an earlier kind of deployment or extended TDY. I, I, it, right when the war was kicking off, I think when we, when, when we invaded Iraq, I was able to help out at launch tool. And, and so basically I got over there and we worked, it had a great team. And, and essentially there were a lot of folks since early on, but I, one fella came back with a kind of a mangled limb and an X fix and and we take him to the OR at least once and said, Jesus, it's just it's not going to work out. Talk to him. And then went ahead and did a baloney amputation and then left it open. And at that time, we were using a lot of back dressings. And so we put the back on the, on the BK. And, uh, it were, and so anyways, we're making rounds the next day. And, uh, and we're going by each patient. And we look in this guy's room and he's not there. The bed's empty. And we're like, where's the sergeant? I won't say his name, but. And so we all run into the room and the guy's on the other side of the bed 
doing push-ups, right? So he's like got one leg and two arms and the back hooked up. And we're like, Sergeant, you can't, you got to get in bed. He's like, no, I'm, you told me I needed to get, mo- I needed to get going. That, that this the amp- amputation was the first step back to my life. And we're like, yeah, we, we didn't really mean that. I mean, but uh, we, of course we meant it. But anyway, so it was quite, it was an inspirational story. And I remember that. And I think I came back and I told my family and this sort of thing. And then fast forward like a year or something, I was getting ready to deploy and I was up at shock, but I came down to Andrews to do all my deployment stuff. And so I'm sitting there in the waiting room, maybe in the, getting to my shots or something. I don't know. And there was a story on the TV and they got it. And it was a newscast. And it's like, you know, we have a unique story about a soldier. So I'm sitting there watching it. And they show these, these soldiers in the field doing drills. And it must have been somewhere around the DC area. And they go, this soldier's getting ready to deploy. It's his, what, second or third deployment. And, but this soldier is somewhat unique. And so the, the guy is literally running drills. Then he comes up to the reporter and they go, this is Sergeant so-and-so. And I'm like, Sergeant so-and-so, I, I think I know this guy. And so they're talking, they go, tell us about where you're going. He goes, well, I'm going back with my unit, blah, blah, blah. This is my second or third deployment. And they go, anything unique about it? And he lifts up his leg. He lifts up his PDUs or things. And there's this prosthesis, right? So it's the same guy. And like, I, I just thought it was so inspirational. And so then that, if I had any kind of feeling sorry for myself about going back on a, a deployment away, I'm like, it went away at that moment. Because there was obviously, we know a lot of these stories of warriors that have done this. So, yeah. So that's my, that's my inspirational or memorable story. So you had the opportunity to work along several of the links of the evacuation chain, both downrange at a level three hospital at Balad, level four in Longstuhl, Germany, and then level five in Walter Reed. And you mentioned before that your trauma fellowship probably best prepared you for the higher levels of care because it was more complex reconstruction. What would you say to a non-fellowship trained orthopedic surgeon who's getting ready to go out even further into an FRSD, so a forward surgical, resuscitative surgical detachment? How, how should they be thinking about it? I, I would say, I think for the, ortho, for the orthopedic piece, I think we've, even we as orthopedics realize the stuff we do is pretty simple, right? It's pretty basic. Like I, so I, I always taught and still practice, even in complex traumas, just kind of stick to the basics. You know, in debridement, just do a thorough debridement, get as, get as much contamination out as possible, debrid in on devitalized tissue, stabilize use of an external fixator, liberally the fasciotomies, fasciotomize early if there's any question. And then hemorrhage control, recognize any sort of vascular malperfusion or, and then at the same time, if, if you felt like a limb was non-viable or it was not going to survive or it was causing harm to the patient, then do an amputation. And so that's, that's probably the hardest thing I think would be to, when you're that front, far forward surgeon about making that decision, geez, do I really amputate this or do I not? I, I think right now we have really good medical resources and ability to stabilize almost anything. So I think that's what we always try to emphasize is, is, or to teach folks or, you know, an amputation is absolutely therapeutic. So stick to the basics. But if, if, if something, if a limb is causing a patient's morbidity, mortality, then an amputation is, is the way to go. So, but obviously that kind of comes with experience, I think. When you were at Longstool or Walter Reed and you were seeing these patients coming off the battlefield who may have been treated by a general surgeon, maybe a 
younger orthopedic surgeon, were you able to learn any lessons from what you were seeing and then feedback to those units that were more near the point of injury to say, hey, these are things that we could do differently maybe to improve long-term outcomes? When I rotated through Belag, there was like a, either a daily or a weekly, I won't say M&M, but that we had, there was a, we had a quality meeting. And so there was feedback. So really, they were seeing folks, obviously, 24, 48 hours after they left Belag, and people were open about sharing, hey, when this, this is what the limb looked like when we got it, or this is, what, this is what the wound looked like. And then, so there was a lot of learning there. And I, I would say from the beginning of my deployment to the end, I probably started being a little more, more aggressive with debridements. Nobody wins if somebody shows up at the next level with infection or worsened condition. So that was very helpful to get that feedback. I think when I was in, the first time I was in long stool, we didn't really have that link so much. So you kind of took what you got and everybody was in it to win it. It was all good care. But yeah, it's staging your care among multiple clinicians at multiple locations could be challenging. And I'm, I've, I'm a ways from it now, but it seems to me like just within a few years, that was going pretty well. Because at the same time, I kind of was fortunate to, to be on the, even when I was doing the Sea Stars thing, I had good relationships with the folks at Walter Reed and National Naval. So I could go down there and, and kind of be a guest attendant and for a case or two when they needed it. So I was seeing stuff there too. So I was quite impressed by the, by everybody's care. So what do you see as the biggest advancement in the care of combat casualties with orthopedic injuries in the past 20 years? Yeah, I used to think it was, you know, our ability to save the limb. And with all the implants we have and the bone grafting techniques and, and X-fix techniques and, and that sort of thing, I think probably the biggest advancement was kind of the, the recognition that especially in those blast injuries and the contamination that although limb salvage with, with that mechanism was possible, it, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't great. And, and, and that amputation was very therapeutic and early amputation and intensive rehab was a way to go. And then some of my colleagues who have a ton of experience of this in San Antonio or, or, or DC, at the Center for Intrepid and all this stuff. I mean, they, they, have, they can speak to this, you know, much better than I. But I would say that amputee care, I think, really took a huge advancement in the, the last conflict. And so I have one kind of follow-up clinical question, having an orthopedic trauma surgeon on. What, are there any principles for managing pelvic bony injuries as far as like downrange? I, I've heard a lot about long bone fractures, but I can't say that any of my training, I've really talked much about pelvic bony injuries. Are you supposed to do anything with them before they head out on the, the long plane flight or what, what tips or thoughts do you have on that? Yeah, I would say most of us would say that pelvic stabilization is the right way to go, right? And so what does that mean? Sheet or binder, even for some benign type injury, it is, is the way to go if there's any question about the stability of it. And it, we're promoting just venostasis because we're just trying to provide a platform. Most of it is venous bleeding, right? Very small amount of the pelvic ring injuries are arterial. So the stabilization is not going to help the arterial, but it'll help the majority of them. We're still talking about is when you put an external fixator on the pelvis and when do you just put a binder or a sheet around it. So I don't know, I've over the years, and I think there's probably some disagreement in North Peak communities, but I would say in general, 
you know, a pelvic X fix, the patient's going to be getting a laparotomy and there's going to be an open belly wound or there's going to be a back on the belly and something like that. I think a pelvic X fix is a great way to go because now you don't, you're not going to be able to do the sheet binder thing with the open abdomen. But otherwise, I think sheet binder works great. I think in some crazy fractures, proximal femurs, hip dislocations, that's tablers, you can stand from the pelvis to the femur and kind of put some distraction there. And, and that's, that's reasonable. But, but yeah, I think for the pelvic ring injuries, either ligamentous or bony, some just some initial stabilization with the sheet binder is going to take care of most of the needs. Do you recommend repeating a pelvic x-ray after you put a, a pelvic binder on to see if you've kind of reduced that or do you just do the best you can? I don't think there's any harm in it. I think what happened for many years, even it happens now, you see my trauma practice, patient comes in, there's a clinical question of some instability and, and the EMS folks are kind of really well trained. So they're putting a binder on the field or they, when they hit the ED, they're getting it. And so they're getting a binder or a sheet before, then they're getting their chest, abdomen, pelvis, CT, and maybe an AP pelvis. And the pelvis looks fine because they just got the binder on it. And then somebody takes it off or we do a physical exam. We're like, this thing is like totally unstable. So it, it works. So yeah, an x-ray after, fabulous, because then it kind of shows the intervention. You spent part of your career in the military on active duty and, and a significant part in the reserves. How would you say your experience was in the reserves as an orthopedic surgeon? Was there anything that could be improved that might incentivize recruitment and retention for the reserves? I was not planning on doing the reserves. I was kind of like a lot of, I think, active duty docs when they finished their time were like, Loved it, but I'm I'm done, you know, type of thing. It was definitely the height. I felt a little guilty because it was kind of the time of the war was still going on in both theaters and, and that sort of thing. So I kind of had some hesitancy. I, I, I had thought about it, but at the same time, we had a, I don't know, there was a good opportunity in the civilian sector for kind of my skill set. We had six kids and they're all prior to high school. So it was a good time to kind of move, if you will. I became a hospital employed surgeon and that was kind of new at the time. And so the hospital that hired me kind of said, are you going to do the reserves? And I'm like, well, I hadn't really planned on it. And they said, well, we support that. And I'm like, well, okay. So like they totally supported it. And then my new partners, they supported it. So then I ended up doing it. And then I found out about the IMA program. And I didn't really know about the IMA program. So that I would give a big shout out to any active duty doc that wants to still hang in there to do the IMA program. Because I could kind of pick my time slots and I didn't have to go drill it once a month, but I had to do my time. So that was a great program, the IMA. I, I think as you run across people that it's a tough program if you're coming from the civilian sector, just want to be a reservist because there's not much structure to it. You see, you really got to know your way around the, the system to get your orders done and get all that stuff done and get everything accomplished. But with that said, I thought that the reserve ended up being a fantastic experience for and, and then it took me out to 25 years. I fell into a good situation, I think. I mean, I worked for it, but but I got, I was very fortunate. And at the same time, I was able to give back. And when I did my time, I first got my, was assigned back at Shock Trauma and C-Star. So I kind of went back and did my old job there. And then I also had my credentials down in DC. So I went down there and hung out there and, and did cases and helped. And then I got assigned to Keesler Air Force Base for my last, I think, four, three or four years and, and just wasn't attending down there when I go down for two weeks. So it, it worked out well. I think it is hard to come up with the perfect model where we're going to take our civilian, highly skilled surgeons and have them as, as, as assets for, for the military just because it's hard to 
take a busy surgical practice. And, and I've thought about that a lot. And I don't know the best way to do that. Uh, I found the IMA program worked great for me, but I also recognized it took a lot of, you, you have to be pretty well seasoned in the military to kind of navigate through it. When you think of a memorable clinical case in your civilian practice that your military experience and training helped you manage it. One of the things I, I think I learned early in the flight medicine years was whole kind of the uh, checklist and the pre-flight and the debrief after and doing all that stuff. And that was never really taught to us, right? Even as a general surgeon intern, I didn't, I didn't know that stuff. And then when that became kind of common, right, in the flight world or the operational world was the pre-flight or the pre-deployment and then the hot wash or debrief after. And then went back into medical practice and didn't really use it that much. And then kind of when I was, just when I was getting, coming off active duty in civilian, it became very big nationally was the, the checklist and crew resource management in the OR. So I, I think for that I seized on to pretty quick because I was like, I'm on board with this. I became very involved with that within our civilian organization and then with our national organization in helping move that forward. So I think that I did take from my military experience, not necessarily my medical experience, but all of us today wouldn't consider doing a case without a timeout, right? That wasn't normal when we first started doing it. But I took that from the military and I think that helped me kind of bring others on board too. One of the unique things about military medicine is sometimes you're the only person available to provide medical care. And let's say you have a medic, a nurse, primary care doc, who's now confronted with an orthopedic injury, a fracture. What kind of advice would you give them as an orthopedic specialist of how to prepare for being in that scenario and, and what to do? I kind of tend to do that now in my civilian practice a little bit just because geographically where we are in Maine, we kind of serve a large region, but there's a lot of hospitals and clinics out there that end up with people from a snowmobile accident or, or a motorcycle or fall off a cliff or whatever. I, I try to tell people that orthopedics is pretty basic, right? You're not going to, you're not going to do much. You're only going to really help. There's not a lot you're going to harm, right? If you straighten the limb and you stabilize it, you reduce something, make an attempt at a reduction. That's a good thing. You put a splint on. That's a good thing. You recognize swelling. You recognize early compartment syndrome. So... I kind of just kind of stick to the basics as far as musculoskeletal care. While you were in the reserves, you obtained an MBA degree from the University of Maine. Why would a trauma orthopedic surgeon want to go back to school for an MBA? And did you get any financial assistance from the military for this degree? I kind of quickly learned I was in some leadership roles just because of my, my clinical skills, if you will. And I learned pretty quickly that I didn't have the financial training or the language used at some of the meetings. And I was advocating for resources or hiring new people or getting OR time. And so I kind of realized I didn't really have that tool set. In college, like many, I, I was anatomy physiology, so I, I didn't I not do business in college. And so I, I don't know, at that time, I thought the best way to do that would be in the MBA. So we're pretty fortunate where we live. Up the road is the University of Maine at Orno. It's like kind of their flagship campus. They have a business school. And so I kind of poked around there and they said, no, we'd love to have you. And so just I started and they, I didn't have any background. So they basically kind of made me go through some undergrad classes. And I did those just at night and just kept rolling with that. And just, and I think it took me almost maybe three and a half years and just got all through it and got a focused in finance and, and loved it. There was some assistance in the reserve program. I, I remember that, that you could 
they would help a little bit with that. But it turned out that within the hospital I worked for, they had an educational program that I think was originally set up for the nurses. And so I kind of poked around that and and realized, geez, can I use that as background? They're like, yeah, that you work here. So so I got financial assistance from my employer and they enjoyed it. And so, yeah, that's worked out well. I would not say I've gone on to be a, a business manager, but it has definitely helped me at the table, just understanding terms and being less in- intimidated by by the finances of it. You mentioned that you are married to a pediatrician and have six children. Tell us about the role of the family supporting a military medicine career, including deployments in sometimes dangerous locations. All this stuff we do and these that I was able to do and in, in, in my career and this sort of thing, then clearly I would not have been able to do it by myself. My wife and I met in medical school and and then got married and by our fourth year, we planned on it. We had a child at our graduation and and so we both went into our internship. So I would just say those were some crazy years and it just all worked out. And I think as far as my family and being part of the family, they were hugely supportive and, and we've been very blessed in many ways. I'd kind of like to give a shout out to my wife because we kind of were able to take those civilian and military careers, both in medicine, and we're able to get the training done and then when I went back to residency, she took a sabbatical and basically raised the family, really. And then when we settled, when I got off active duty, she went back into practice and now she's full time. So, yeah, no, I would just kind of use this to encourage others that are navigating those in their early years that, that it's definitely possible. It's tough, but it's definitely, it's very satisfying. One of your six children, Dave Jr., contacted us about you being a potential guest on War Docs. He did Air Force ROTC at Notre Dame and is currently a fourth year at USIS. Tell us about the advice and guidance you gave him as he was growing up and considering both military and medicine. I tried to be pretty careful about giving them advice and that sort of thing. I, like many of us, I just tried to kind of live through, give them advice by my, by my actions, I guess. I would say I was definitely with all our kids very let them know that to have the opportunity to serve their country was a privilege and that they should definitely take advantage of it. Dave Jr. is definitely, he's just a hard worker. He always has been. I never really needed to tell him to do anything. Like, so I'd, I'd be cautious even saying I, I influenced him. He's just a hard worker, as his siblings are, for sure. If your grandkids or great-grandkids were to unearth this podcast in 50 to 100 years, what would you want them to know about your military career? And what would you want your legacy to be? I guess I'd want my legacy or them to know that as physicians and as medical folks, the skill set we're taught is so important. And it, it is truly a privilege, although we, sometimes we kind of beats us down. It is truly a privilege. And to be able to do that and serve your country like I got to do. That's incredible. And the, the people's lives we've affected and their families, I'm not, not old, but I definitely have the ability to reflect back and, and, and know a lot of stories now, people. And then we're just very fortunate in what the skill set we've been taught and how we can help people. So my legacy is I would encourage people to realize the privilege it is to, to do what we do. Although it can be challenging, it's a huge privilege. I have great admiration for all the military folks we've, yeah, I've cared for, you've cared for, and what they do, right? Like, it's, it's amazing. So I want them to know that I'm appreciative of the gifts I've been given or been taught 
and, and of the military coach service. We've been speaking with retired Air Force Colonel Dr. David Carmack on Wardock's podcast. Dave, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us, and thank you for your service to this nation. Well, thank you guys for doing what you do. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.